Chapter 60. The Line. With reference to the whaling scene shortly to be described, as well as for the better understanding of all similar scenes elsewhere presented, I have here to speak of the magical, sometimes horrible, whale line. The line originally used in the fishery was one of the best hemp, slightly vapored with tar, not impregnated with it, as in the case of ordinary ropes. For while tar, as ordinarily used, makes the hemp more pliable to the rope maker, and also renders the rope itself more convenient to the sailor for common ship use. Yet, not only would the ordinary quantity too much stiffen the whale line for the close coiling to which it must be subjected, but as most seamen are beginning to learn, tar, in general, by no means adds to the rope's durability or strength, however much it may give it compactness and gloss. Of late years, the manila rope has in the American fishery almost entirely superseded hemp as a material for whale lines. For though not so durable as hemp, it is stronger and far more soft and elastic. And, I will add, since there is an aesthetics in all things, it is much more handsome and becoming to the boat than hemp. Hemp is a dusky dark fellow, but manila is a golden hair Circassian to behold. The whale line is only two-thirds of an inch in thickness. At first sight, you would not think it so strong as it really is. By experiment, its one in fifty yarns will each suspend a weight of 120 pounds, so that the whole rope will bear a strain nearly equal to three tons. In length, the common sperm whale line measures something over 200 fathoms. Towards the stern of the boat, it is spirally coiled away in the tub, not like the worm pipe of a still, though, but so as to form one round, cheese-shaped mass of densely bedded sheaves, or layers of concentric spiralizations, without any hollow but the heart, or minute vertical tube formed at the access of the cheese. As the least tangle or kink in the coiling wood in running out infallibly takes somebody's arm, leg, or entire body off, the utmost precaution is used in stowing the line in its tub. Some harpooners will consume almost an entire morning in this business, carrying the line high aloft and then reeving it downwards through a block towards the tub, so as in the act of coiling to free it from all possible wrinkles and twists. In the English boats, two tubs are used instead of one, the same line being continuously coiled in both tubs. There is some advantage in this, because these twin tubs being so small, they fit more readily into the boat and do not strain it so much, whereas the American tub, nearly three feet in diameter and of proportionate depth, makes a rather bulky freight for a craft whose planks are but one half inch in thickness. For the bottom of the whaleboat is like critical ice, which will bear up a considerable distributed weight, but not very much of a concentrated one. When the painted canvas cover is clapped on the American line tub, the boat looks as if it were pulling off with a prodigious great wedding cake to present to the whales. Both ends of the line are exposed, the lower end terminating in an eye splice or loop coming up from the bottom against the side of the tub and hanging over its edge completely disengaged from everything. This arrangement of the lower end is necessary on two counts. 
First, in order to facilitate the fastening to it of an additional line from a neighboring boat, in case the stricken whales should sound so deep as to threaten to carry off the entire line originally attached to the harpoon. In these instances, the whale, of course, is shifted like a mug of ale, as it were, from the one boat to the other, though the first boat always hovers at hand to assist its consort. Second, this arrangement is indispensable for common safety's sake, for were the lower end of the line in any way attached to the boat, and were the whale then to run the line out to the end almost in a single smoking minute, as he sometimes does, he would not stop there, for the doomed boat will infallibly be dragged down after him into the profundity of the sea, and in that case no town crier would ever find her again. Before lowering the boat for the chase, the upper end of the line is taken aft from the tub and passing round the loggerhead there, is again carried forward the entire length of the boat, resting crosswise upon the loom or handle of every man's oar, so that it jogs against his wrist in rowing, and also passing between the men as they alternately sit at the opposite gunwalls, the leaded chocks or grooves in the extreme pointed prow of the boat, where a wooden pin or skewer the size of a common quill prevents it from slipping out. From the chocks it hangs in a slight festoon over the bows, and is then passed inside the boat again, and some ten or twenty fathoms, called box line, being coiled upon the box in the bows, it continues its way to the gunwale still a little further aft, and is then attached to the short warp, the rope which is immediately connected with the harpoon, but previous to that connection, the short warp goes through sundry mystifications, too tedious to detail. Thus, the whale line folds the whole boat in its complicated coils, twisting and writhing around it in almost every direction. All the oarsmen are involved in its perilous contortions, so that to the timid eye of the landsman they seem as Indian jugglers, with the deadliest snakes sportively festooning their limbs. Nor can any son of mortal woman for the first time seat himself amid those hempman intricacies, and while straining his utmost at the oar, bethink him that any unknown instant the harpoon may be darted, and all these horrible contortions be put in play like ringed lightnings. He cannot be thus circumstanced without a shudder that makes the very marrow in his bones to quiver in him like a shaken jelly. Yet habit, strange thing, what cannot habit accomplish? Gayer sallies, more merry mirth, better jokes and brighter repartees. You never heard over your mahogany than you will hear over the half-inch white cedar of the whaleboat, when thus hung in hangman's nooses, and like the six burghers of Calais before King Edward, the six men composing the crew pull into the jaws of death with a halter around every neck, as you may say. Perhaps a very little thought will now enable you to account for those repeated whaling disasters, some few of which are casually chronicled, of this man or that man being taken out of the boat by the line and lost. For when the line is darting out, to be seated then in the boat is like being seated in the midst of the manifold whizzings of a steam engine in full play, when every flying beam and shaft and wheel is grazing you. It is worse, for you cannot sit motionless in the heart of these perils, because the boat is rocking like a cradle, 
and you are pitched one way and the other without the slightest warning, and only by a certain self-adjusting buoyancy and simultaneousness of volition and action can you escape being made a mazapa of and run away with where the all-seeing sun himself could never pierce you out. Again, as the profound calm, which only apparently precedes and prophecies of the storm, is perhaps more awful than the storm itself. For indeed, the calm is but the wrapper and envelope of the storm, and contains it in itself, as the seemingly harmless rifle holds the fatal powder, and the ball and the explosion, so the graceful repose of the line, as it silently serpentines around the oarsmen before being brought into actual play, This is a thing which carries more of true terror than any other aspect of this dangerous affair. But why say more? All men live enveloped in whale lines. All are born with halters round their necks. But it is only when caught in the swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. And if you be a philosopher, though seated in the whaleboat, you would not at heart feel one whit more of terror than though seated before your evening fire with a poker and not a harpoon by your side. Chapter 61 Stubb Kills a Whale If to Starbuck the apparition of the squid was a thing of portents, to Queequeg it was quite a different object. When you see him squid, said the savage, honing his harpoon in the bow of his hoisted boat, then you quick see him sperm whale, The next day was exceedingly still and sultry, and with nothing special to engage them, the Pequod's crew could hardly resist the spell of sleep induced by such a vacant sea. For this part of the Indian Ocean, through which we were then voyaging, is not what whalemen call a lively ground. That is, it affords fewer glimpses of porpoises, dolphins, flying fish, and other vivacious denizens of more stirring waters than those of the Rio de la Plata, or the inshore ground off Peru. It was my turn to stand at the foremast head, and with my shoulders leaning against the slackened royal shrouds, to and fro I idly swayed in what seemed an enchanted air. No resolution could withstand it. In that dreamy mood losing all consciousness, at last my soul went out of my body, though my body still continued to sway as a pendulum will, long after the power which first moved it is withdrawn. Air forgetfulness altogether came over me. I had noticed that the seamen at the main and mizzen mastheads were already drowsy, so that at last all three of us lifelessly swung from the spars, and for every swing that we made there was a nod from below, from the slumbering helmsman. The waves, too, nodded their indolent crests, and across the wide trance of the sea, east nodded to west, and the sun over all. Suddenly, bubbles seemed bursting beneath my closed eyes. Like vices, my hands grasped the shrouds. Some invisible, gracious agency preserved me. With a shock, I came back to life, and lo, close under our lee, not forty fathoms off, a gigantic sperm whale lay rolling in the water like the capsized hull of a frigate, his broad, glossy back of an Ethiopian hue, glistening in the sun's rays like a mirror. But lazily undulating in the trough of the sea, and ever and anon tranquilly spouting his vapory jet, 
the whale looked like a portly burger smoking his pipe of a warm afternoon. But that pipe, poor whale, was thy last. As if struck by some enchanter's wand, the sleepy ship and every sleeper in it all at once started into wakefulness, and more than a score of voices from all parts of the vessel simultaneously, with the three notes from aloft, shouted forth the accustomed cry, as the great fish slowly and regularly spouted the sparkling brine into the air. "'Clear away the boats! Luff!' cried Ahab, and obeying his own order, he dashed the helm down before the helmsman could handle the spokes. The sudden exclamations of the crew must have alarmed the whale, and ere the boats were down, majestically turning, he swam away to the leeward. But with such a steady tranquility, and making so few ripples as he swam— that thinking after all he might not as yet be alarmed, Ahab gave orders that not an oar should be used, and no man must speak but in whispers. So seated like Ontario Indians in the gunwales of the boat, we swiftly but silently paddled along, the calm not admitting of the noiseless sails being set. Presently, as we thus glided in chase, the monster perpendicularly flitted his tail forty feet into the air, and then sank out of sight like a tower swallowed up. There go flukes, was the cry, an announcement immediately followed by Stubbs producing his match and igniting his pipe, for now a respite was granted. After the full interval of his sounding had elapsed, the whale rose again, and being now in advance of the smoker's boat, and being much nearer to it than to any of the others, Stubb counted upon the honor of the capture. It was obvious now that the whale had at length become aware of his pursuers. All silence of cautiousness was therefore no longer of use. Paddles were dropped, and oars came loudly into play, and still puffing at his pipe, Stubb cheered on his crew to the assault. Yes, a mighty change had come over the fish. All alive to his jeopardy, he was going head out, that part obliquely projecting from the mad yeast which he brewed. It will be seen in some other place of what a very light substance the entire interior of the sperm whale's enormous head consists. Though apparently the most massive, it is by far the most buoyant part about him, so that with ease he elevates it in the air and invariably does so when going at his utmost speed. Besides, such is the breadth of the upper part of the front of his head and such the tapering cutwater formation of the lower part that by obliquely elevating his head he thereby may be said to transform himself from a bluff-bowed sluggish galio into a sharp-pointed New York pilot boat. Starter, starter, my men. Don't hurry yourselves. Take plenty of time, but starter. Starter like thunderclaps, that's all, cried Stubb, spluttering out the smoke as he spoke. Give him the long and strong stroke, Tashtigo. Starter, Tash, my boy. Starter all. But keep cool, keep cool. Cucumbers is the word. Easy, easy. Only starter like grim death and grinning devils. And raise the buried dead perpendicular out of their graves, boys. That's all. Starter. Woohoo! screamed the gay header in reply, raising some old war whoop to the skies, as every oarsman in the strained boat involuntarily bounced forward with the one tremendous leading stroke which the eager Indian gave but his wild screams were answered by others quite as wild. 
Kihi, kihi, yelled Dagu, straining forwards and backwards on his seat, like a pacing tiger in his cage. Kala, kulu, howled Queequeg, as if smacking his lips over a mouthful of grenadier steak. And thus, with oars and yells, the keels cut the sea. Meanwhile, Stubb, retaining his place in the van, still encouraged his men to the onset, all the while puffing the smoke from his mouth. Like desperados, they tugged and they strained till the welcome cry was heard. Stand up, Tashtigo, give it to him. The harpoon was hurled. Stern all, the oarsmen backed water. The same moment something went hot and hissing along every one of their wrists. It was the magical line. An instant before, Stubb had swiftly caught two additional turns with it round the loggerhead, whence, by reason of its increased rapid circlings, a hempen blue smoke now jetted up and mingled with the steady fumes from his pipe. As the line passed round and round the loggerhead, so also, just before reaching that point, it blisteringly passed through and through both of Stubb's hands, from which the hand claws, or squares of quilted canvas, sometimes worn at these times, had accidentally dropped. It was like holding an enemy's sharp, two-edged sword by the blade, and that enemy all the time striving to wrest it out of your clutch. "'Wet the line! Wet the line!' cried Stubb to the tub oarsman, him seated by the tub, who, snatching off his hat, dashed seawater into it. More turns were taken, so that the line began holding its place. The boat now flew through the boiling water like a shark, all fins. Stubb and Tashtigo here changed places, stem for stern, a staggering business, truly in that rocking commotion. Partly to show the indispensableness of this act, it may here be stated that, in the old Dutch fishery, a mop was used to dash the running line with water. In many other ships, a wooden piggin or baler is set apart for that purpose. Your hat, however, is the most convenient. From the vibrating line extending the entire length of the upper part of the boat, and from it now being more tight than a harp string, you would have thought the craft had two keels, one cleaving the water, the other the air, as the boat churned on through both opposing elements at once. A continual cascade played at the bows, a ceaseless whirling eddy in her wake, and at the slightest motion from within, even but of a little finger, the vibrating, cracking craft canted over her spasmodic gunwall into the sea. Thus they rushed, each man with might and main clinging to his seat to prevent being tossed to the foam, and the tall form of Tashtigo at the steering oar, crouching almost double, in order to bring down his center of gravity. Whole Atlantics and Pacific seemed past as they shot on their way, till at length the whale somewhat slackened his flight. "'Haul in, haul in!' cried Stubb to the bowsman. And facing round towards the whale, all hands began pulling the boat up to him, while yet the boat was being towed on. Soon ranging up by his flank, Stubb, firmly planting his knee in the clumsy cleat, darted dart after dart into the flying fish. At the word of command, the boat alternately sterning out of the way of the whale's horrible wallow, and then ranging up for another fling. The red tide now poured from all sides of the monster like brooks down a hill. His tormented body rolled, not in brine but in blood, which bubbled and seethed for furlongs behind in their wake.
The slanting sun, playing upon this crimson pond in the sea, sent back its reflection into every face, so that they all glowed to each other like red men. And all the while, jet after jet of white smoke was agonizingly shot from the spiracle of the whale, and vehement puff after puff from the mouth of the excited headsman, as at every dart, hauling in upon his crooked lance, by the line attached to it, Stubb straightened it again and again, by a few rapid blows against the gunwall, then again and again sent it into the whale. "'Pull up, pull up,' he now cried to the bowsman, as the waning whale relaxed in his wrath. "'Pull up close to,' and the boat ranged along the fish's flank. When reaching far over the bow, Stubb slowly churned his long, sharp lance into the fish and kept it there, carefully churning and churning, as if cautiously seeking to feel after some gold watch that the whale might have swallowed, and which he was fearful of breaking ere he could hook it out. But that gold watch, he sought, was the innermost life of the fish. And now it is struck. For starting from his trance into that unspeakable thing, called his flurry, the monster horribly wallowed in his blood, overwrapped himself in impenetrable, mad, boiling spray, so that the imperiled craft, instantly dropping astern, had much ado blindly to struggle out from the frenzied twilight into the clear air of the day. And now, abating in his flurry, the whale once more rolled out into view, surging from side to side, spasmodically dilating and contracting his spout hole with sharp, cracking, agonized respirations. At last, gush after gush of clotted red gore, as if it had been the purple leaves of red wine, shot into the frighted air, and falling back again, ran dripping down his motionless flanks into the sea. His heart had burst. "'He's dead, Mr. Stubb,' said Dagoo. "'Yes, both pipes smoked out, "'and withdrawing his own from his mouth, "'Stubb scattered the dead ashes over the water, "'and for a moment stood thoughtfully eyeing the vast corpse he had made. "'Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios "'of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.'